Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 62 Am Rhein One fine morning, a few weeks later, the Batavia steamboat left the Tower of London laden with English fugitives. The benches and gangways were crowded with rosy children and bustling nursemaids, ladies in the prettiest bonnets and summer dresses, gentlemen in linen jackets, and stout, trim old veterans. There were jaunty young Cambridge students travelling with their tutor. There were Irish gentlemen with the most dashing whiskers, talking about horses incessantly and prodigiously polite to the young ladies on board. There was old Methuselah besides his new young wife, with Captain Papillon of the Guards holding her parasol and guidebooks. There was young May, carrying off his bride, who had been at school with his grandmother. There was the great Bearacres family that sat by themselves, stared at everybody, and spoke to no one. Their carriages, emblazoned with coronets, were on the foredeck, locked in with a dozen more vehicles. It was difficult to pass in and out amongst them, and the poor inmates of the forecabin had scarcely any space to move. These consisted of a few magnificently dressed gentlemen from Houndsditch, several honest fellows with portfolios who began sketching within half an hour, and some French maids who were ill before the boat had passed Greenwich. A groom or two lounged round the horse-boxes and talked about the races. Amongst these vehicles was a very neat, handsome travelling carriage. "'Whose is that?' asked one gentleman." and was told that it belonged to a nabob from Calcutta who was enormously rich. At this moment, a young gentleman, who had been warned off the bridge, dropped from there to the roof of a carriage, clambered over the other roofs until he reached this travelling carriage, and descended through the window into it. The young gentleman was our friend George Osborne. Uncle Joss and his mamma were on the quarter-deck with Dobbin, and they were about to make a summer tour. Joss was seated at that moment on deck, nearly opposite the Earl of Bearacres and his family, whose proceedings absorbed him. Both the noble couple looked rather younger than in the eventful year 1815, when Joss remembered seeing them at Brussels. Lady Bearacre's hair, which was then dark, was now a beautiful auburn, whereas Lord Bearacre's whiskers, formerly red, were a rich black with purple and green reflections in the light. The presence of a lord fascinated Joss, and he could look at nothing else. "'These people seem to interest you a good deal,' said Dobbin, laughing. Amelia laughed, too. She was dressed in mourning.' But the little bustle of the journey excited her, and she looked particularly happy. "'What a heavenly day!' she said, and added, with great originality, "'I hope we shall have a calm passage.' 
Joss waved his hand. If you have made the voyages we have, he said, you wouldn't care about the weather. <laughs> but nevertheless, he passed the night direfully sick in his carriage, where his servant tended him with brandy and water. In due time, this happy party landed at Rotterdam and were transported by steamer to Cologne. Here Joss was gratified to see his arrival announced in the Cologne newspapers. He had his court dress with him. He had insisted that Dobbin should bring his regimental uniform and announced that he intended to be presented at some foreign courts and pay his respects to the sovereigns of the countries which he honoured with a visit. Wherever the party stopped, Mr. Joss left his own card and the Major's with the English consul. It was with great difficulty that he could be restrained from putting on his cocked hat and tights to do so. He kept a journal of his voyage and noted elaborately the defects or excellences of the various inns at which he put up and of the wines and dishes there. As for Emmy, she was very happy and pleased. Dobbin used to carry about her stool and sketchbook and admired her drawings as they had never been admired before. She sat upon steamers' decks and drew crags and castles, or she mounted upon donkeys and ascended to ancient robber towers with Georgie and Dobbin. She laughed, and the Major did too, at his droll figure on donkey-back with his long legs touching the ground. He was the party's interpreter having a good military knowledge of the German language. Over a few weeks, Georgie made prodigious advances in German and could talk to waiters in a way that charmed his mother and amused his guardian. Mr. Joss did not join in their afternoon excursions. He slept a good deal after dinner or basked in the inn gardens. Pleasant Rhine gardens, fair scenes of peace, and sunshine, noble purple mountains reflected in the magnificent stream. Who that has ever seen you does not have a grateful memory of your beauty? To lay down the pen and think of Rhineland makes one happy. On a summer evening, the cows are trooping down from the hills, their bells tinkling to the old town with its moats, spires, and chestnut trees. Long blue shadows stretch over the grass, and the sky and the river flame in crimson and gold. The sun sinks behind the great castle-crested mountains. The rivers grow darker and darker. Lights quiver from the windows in the old ramparts and twinkle peacefully in the villages under the hills. So Joss used to sleep a good deal with his bandana over his face and read all the English news, and his friends did not much miss him. Yes, they were very happy. They went to the opera often, to those unassuming, dear old operas in the German towns. Here Emmy was introduced for the first time to the wonders of Mozart. The major was musical, but his chief pleasure in these operas was in watching Emmy's rapture. A new world of love and beauty broke upon her. How could she be indifferent when she heard Mozart? She wondered when she prayed whether it was not wicked to feel so much delight at music. The major, whom she consulted, said that, for his part, every beauty of art or nature made him grateful, 
and that the pleasure to be had in fine music or a beautiful landscape or picture was something for which we might thank heaven. I like to dwell upon this period of Amelia's life and to think that she was cheerful and happy. You see, she has not had too much of that sort of existence yet, nor has she had the chance to educate her tastes or her intelligence. She has been domineered over by vulgar intellects. It is the lot of many of us women. And it must be remembered that this poor lady had never met a gentleman in her life until this present moment. Perhaps these are rarer people than we think. Which of us can point out many such? Many men who are generous and constant, whose lack of meanness makes them simple, who have an honest manly sympathy for great and small alike. We all know a hundred whose coats are very well made, and a score who have excellent manners, and one or two happy beings who are in the inner circles, the very bull's eye of fashion. But how many are gentlemen? The Major was one, without any doubt. He had very long legs, a yellow face, and a slight lisp. But his thoughts were just. His life was honest and pure, and his heart warm and humble. He certainly had very large hands and feet, which the two George Osbornes used to laugh at, and their jeers perhaps led poor little Emmy astray as to his worth. But have we not all been misled about our heroes and changed our opinions? Emmy, in this happy time, found that hers underwent a very great change about the merits of the Major. Perhaps it was the happiest time of both their lives, indeed, if they did but know it. At all events, this couple were very decently contented. Georgie was always present. In their walks he would be on ahead, and up a tower stair or a tree, whilst the soberer couple were below, the Major smoking his cigar, whilst Emmy sketched. It was on this very tour that I had the pleasure to make their acquaintance. It was at the little town of Pumpernickel that I first saw Colonel Dobbin and his party. They had arrived at the Erbprinz Hotel, the best in town, and were dining there. Everybody remarked the majesty of Joss and the knowing way in which he ate his dinner. The little boy, too, had a great appetite and consumed pudding, roast fowls, and sweetmeats with a gallantry that did honor to his nation. The lady in black, the boy's mamma, laughed and blushed and looked exceedingly pleased and shy. The major, or colonel, as he became very soon afterwards, joked gravely with the boy, pointing out dishes which he hadn't tried. They went on to the Grand Theatre, where Madame de Vrien, then in the bloom of her beauty and genius, sang in the wonderful opera of Fidelio. From our places in the stalls we could see our four friends from the hotel, and I could not help noticing the effect which the magnificent, soaring music produced upon Mrs. Osborne. Her face wore an expression of wonder and delight. The next day there was another performance of Beethoven, Die Schlacht bei Vittoria. After drums, trumpets, thunders of artillery, and groans of the dying, at last, in a grand triumphal swell, comes... God save the king! 
at the burst of that beloved and well-known music, every English person in the house, we young folks in the stalls, the fat gentleman and the long major and the lady with the little boy, stood bolt upright. As for Lord Tapeworm, the chargé d'affaires, he rose up in his box and bowed and simpered as if he represented the whole empire. Tapeworm was nephew of old Marshal Tiptoff, who had once been colonel of the regiment in which Major Dobbin served. Tapeworm must have met Dobbin at the Marshal's house, for he condescended to come over from his own box and publicly shook hands with him. "'Have I the honour of addressing myself to Mrs. Dorbin?' he asked, with an insinuating grin. Georgie burst out laughing. Emmy and the Major blushed. "'The lady is Mrs. George Osborne,' said the Major, "'and this is her brother, Mr. Sedley, a distinguished officer of the Bengal Civil Service.' My lord gave Joss the most fascinating smile. "'Are you going to stop in Pumpernickel?' he said. It is a dull place, but we would try and make it agreeable to you. I shall do myself the honour of calling upon you tomorrow at your inn. And he went away with a glance which he thought must finish Mrs. Osborne completely. After the performance, the young fellows lounged about the lobbies and saw the society leave. Tapeworm walked off enveloped in his cloak, looking as much as possible like Don Juan. The Prime Minister's lady had just squeezed herself into her sedan when the English group came out, the boy yawning, the Major carefully keeping the shawl over Mrs. Osborne's head, and Mr. Sedley looking grand. We took off our hats to them, and the lady gave us a little smile and a curtsy. The carriage from the inn was waiting for them, but the fat man said he would walk and smoke his cigar on his way home, so the other three went without him. We walked with the stout gentleman and talked about the advantages of the place. It was very agreeable. There were shooting parties, balls, and entertainments. The society was good, the theatre excellent, and the living cheap. "'And our minister seems a most affable person.' our new friend said, with a good medical man. I can fancy the place to be most eligible. Good night, gentlemen. And Joss creaked up the stairs. We rather hoped that that nice-looking woman would be induced to stay some time in the town. Chapter 63 In Which We Meet an Old Acquaintance Lord Tapeworm's politeness impressed Mr. Sedley, and the next morning at breakfast he declared that Pumpernickel was the pleasantest little place he had visited on their tour. Dobbin laughed when he heard Joss talk about Tapeworm Castle and learned that he had already been consulting his peerage. When the diplomat called on the party, Joss received him with profuse honours. There was an entertainment of cold meats, jellies, and other delicacies brought in upon trays, of which Mr. Joss insisted that his noble guests should partake. Tapeworm, so long as he could have an opportunity of admiring the bright eyes of Mrs. Osborne, was pleased to accept an invitation to stay. He chatted to Mr. Sedley about India and the dancing girls there, asked Amelia about that beautiful boy who had been with her, and tried to fascinate Dobbin by talking of the late war and the exploits of the Duke of Pumpernickel. 
Lord Tapeworm held the happy belief that almost every woman he looked at was in love with him. He left Emmy, persuaded that she was slain by his attractions, and went home to write a pretty note to her. She was not fascinated, only puzzled by his grinning, his simpering, his scented handkerchief, and his high-heeled lacquered boots. She did not understand one-half the compliments he paid. She had never met a professional ladies' man as yet, and looked upon him as something curious rather than pleasant. Joss, on the contrary, was delighted. "'How very affable his lordship is,' he said. "'How very kind to say he would send his medical man. We should pay our respects at court as soon as possible.' When Tapeworm's doctor came, he speedily convinced Joss that the pumpernickel mineral springs and his own particular treatment would restore him to youth and slimness. Joss, therefore, proposed to spend the autumn in this delightful place, and punctual to his word, on the next day, the chargé d'affaires presented Joss and the Major to Victor Aurelius the to Victor Aurelius the Seventeenth. They were invited to dinner at court, and afterwards the politest ladies of the town instantly called upon Mrs. Osborne. As not one of these was under the rank of a baroness, Joss's delight was beyond expression. Emily was presented to the noble family. Since mourning is not admitted in court on certain days, she appeared in a pink dress with a diamond ornament given to her by her brother. She looked so pretty that the Duke and court, to say nothing of the Major, all admired her excessively. In this dress she walked apollonized with Major Dobbin, while Mr. Joss had the honour of leading out the Countess of Schlussbach, an old lady with a hump back, but related to half the royal houses of Germany. Pumpernickel stands in a happy valley, through which sparkles the stream of the pump. In some places the river is big enough to support a ferryboat, in others to turn a mill. In Pumpernickel itself, the great and renowned Victor Aurelius the Fourteenth built a magnificent bridge on which his own statue rises, surrounded by water nymphs and with its foot on the neck of a prostrate Turk. The statue smiles and points in the direction of the Aurelius Platz, where the prince began to erect a new palace that would have been the wonder of his age if he had only had the money to complete it. The gardens, which are now rather faded, copied those of Versailles. Amidst the terraces and groves there are some huge waterworks still, which spout and froth stupendously, and which the people of the neighborhood admire beyond expression when they come to the fete, with which the happy little notion still celebrates the birthdays of its princes. Then, from all the towns of the duchy, which stretches for nearly ten miles, from all the little villages, farms, and mills along the pump, come troops of people in red petticoats and velvet headdresses or three-cornered hats, flocking to the festivities. Then the theatre is open for nothing, 
The fountains begin to play. The delighted people are permitted to march through room after room after room of the Grand Ducal Palace and admire the slippery floor, the rich hangings, and the spittoons at the doors of the innumerable chambers. The theatre of Pumpernickel is famous in that part of Germany. It languished a little when the present duke insisted upon having his own operas played there, and it is said one day, in a fury, broke a bassoon on the head of the chapelmaster, who was conducting too slow, but the prince executes his music in private now. When there are balls at Pumpernickel, though there may be four hundred people at supper, there is a servant in scarlet and lace to attend upon every four, and everyone is served on silver. There are festivals and entertainments going on continually, and the Duke has his chamberlains, and the Duchess her ladies of honour, just like more potent potentates. The Constitution is, or was, a moderate despotism, tempered by a chamber that might or might not be elected. The army consisted of a magnificent band that also did duty on the stage. Besides the band, there was a rich and numerous staff of officers, and a few men. That there were feuds in the place, no one can deny. Politics ran very high at Pumpernickel, and factions, supporting either the English or the French, were very bitter. Everybody in the town was ranged in one or other of these factions. We had on our English side the Home Minister, the Master of the Horse, the Duke's private secretary, and the Prince's tutor, whereas of the French party were the Foreign Minister, the Commander-in-Chief's Lady, and the Hofmarschall and his wife. Their headquarters were at the other end of the town. And though, of course, these gentlemen were obliged to be civil in public, yet they cut at each other with epigrams as sharp as razors. Emmy had a French teacher, who complimented her upon the purity of her accent and her ease of learning. The fact is, she had learned the grammar long ago, so as to be able to teach it to George. She had singing lessons, and performed with such a true voice that the major's windows were always open to hear the lesson. Some of the German ladies, who are very sentimental, fell in love with her. These are trivial details, but they relate to happy times. The major made himself George's tutor, and read Caesar and mathematics with him, and they had a German master and rode beside Emmy's carriage. She drove about with one of her dear German friends, and Joss asleep on the back seat. Joss was becoming very sweet upon the Gräfin Fanny de Butterbrod, a tender-hearted and unassuming young creature, a countess, but with scarcely ten pounds a year. Fanny declared that to be Amelia's sister was the greatest delight possible, and Joss might have put the question when events occurred. A grand festival took place upon the marriage of the Prince of Pumpernickel with the lovely Princess Amelia of Hamburg Schlippenschloppen. Its magnificence was unsurpassed. All the neighboring princes, princesses, and grandees were invited to the feast. Garlands and triumphal arches were hung across the road to welcome the young bride.
The great St. Michael's fountain ran with uncommonly sour wine, while that in the artillery place frothed with beer. Poles were put up in the park and gardens for the happy peasantry to climb, carrying off prizes of watches, silver forks, and sausages hung with pink ribbon at the top. Georgie got a sausage, having swarmed up the pole to the delight of the spectators, and gave it to a peasant who was blubbering because he had just failed in his own attempt. Crowds of foreigners arrived, and of English, of course. Besides the court balls, public balls were given at the town hall, where there was a room for gaming, for the week of the festivities only, although the inhabitants of the town were not allowed to play. That little scapegrace Georgie Osborne came eagerly to this entertainment, accompanied by Joss's courier, and hankered round the tables where the croupiers and the punters were at work. Women were playing, some of them masked. A woman with light hair, in a low dress by no means so fresh as it had been, and with a black mask on, was seated at one of the roulette tables with a couple of florins. As the croupier called out the colour and number, she ventured her money with great care. But in spite of her care, she guessed wrong, and the last two florins followed each other under the croupier's rake. She gave a sigh, and shrugged her shoulders, which were already too much out of her gown. Then, looking round, she saw Georgie's honest face. She looked hard at him and said, "'Monsieur n'est pas joué?' "'No, madame,' said the boy. But she must have recognized his accent, for she answered in English with a slight foreign tone. "'You have never played? Will you do me a little favor? "'What is it?' said Georgie, blushing. "'Play this for me, if you please. Put it on any number.' And she took from her bosom a purse, and out of it a gold piece, the only coin there. She put it into George's hand. The boy laughed and did as he was bid. The number came up. "'Thank you,' said she, pulling the money towards her. "'Thank you. What is your name?' "'My name's Osborne,' said Georgie, and he was fingering in his own pockets for money when the Major, in his uniform, and Joss from the court ball, made their appearance. The Major instantly went up and pulled him briskly away from the place of temptation. Joss, however, looked on with much interest at the game, standing close by the lady in the mask. "'Joss,' the Major said, "'are you coming with George and me?' "'I'll stay and go home later,' Joss said. So Dobbin left him and walked home with Georgie. "'Did you play?' asked the Major when they were outside. "'No. Give me your word of honour as a gentleman that you never will.' "'Why?' said the boy. "'It seems very good fun.' And in a very eloquent and impressive manner. The major showed him why he shouldn't, and would have enforced his lessons by the example of Georgie's own father, if it would not have reflected on the other's memory. Joss, however, remained behind at the play-table. He was no gambler, but not averse to the little excitement of the sport now and then, and he had some Napoleons chinking in his embroidered pockets. He put one down over the fair shoulder of the little gambler before him. She moved to make room for him by her side. "'Come and give me good luck,' she said, 
still in a foreign accent. Joss sat down. Do you play much? the foreign mask said. I, I put down a nap or two, said Joss with a superb air, flinging down a gold piece. Yes, a nap after dinner, said the mask archly. You do not play to win. No more do I. I play to forget, but I cannot. I cannot forget old times, monsieur. Your little nephew is the image of his father, and you, you are not changed. Yet everybody changes. Everybody forgets. Nobody has any heart. Good God! Who is it? asked Joss in a flutter. Can't you guess? Joseph sadly said the little woman in a sad voice, and undoing her mask, she looked at him. You have forgotten me. Good heavens! Mrs. Crawley! gasped Joss. Rebecca, said the other, putting her hand on his. But she followed the game still, all the time she was looking at him. I am staying at the elephant, she continued. Ask for Madame de Rodon. I saw my dear Amelia today. How pretty she looked, and how happy. So do you, everybody but me, who am wretched. And she moved her money from the red to the black as if by a chance movement of her hand, while she was wiping her eyes with a torn handkerchief. The red came up again, and she lost all that stake. Come away, she said. Come with me a little. We are old friends, are we not, dear Mr. Sedley? And they went out into the moonlight, together. Thanks for listening to... Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.